Well, um, it's really meaningful, rich, rich honor to get to be with you. My wife, Nancy, and I love it that we get to call Westgate Church our home. This is a great church. And uh, uh, Steve Clifford, who was pastor here for a long time, is a very, very dear friend. And, and now to get to sit under the teaching and leadership of Jay and the crew here. And I got to preach while Steve and Jay are both sitting there watching me. So <laughs> think of how I feel. Um, you're going through, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. There was a Harvard scholar, Harvey Cox, who said the Sermon on the Mount is the most luminous, most quoted, most analyzed, most contested, most influential moral and religious discourse of all time. Never been a talk like it. Whatever you think about Jesus or God, never been words that have impacted humanity like this. And I actually wrote kind of a mini version of it. So I don't know if I'll do this at the uh, 11:15 service, but I'll give it to you. This is the Sermon of the Mount in, in just two or three minutes. Blessed are the poor and the sore and the meek. Blessed are the pure, the unsure, the weak. Blessed are the short. Blessed are the slow. Blessed are the dropouts and the washouts and the burnouts and the leftouts. Blessed are you when you are dissed and dismissed on account of me. Be glad. Be very glad. You're living the dream. It's mostly unseen. Things are not what they seem. You are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your flavor. Don't lose the savor. You're the light of the world. Let it shine. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to still them. I have come to fulfill them. The law is not the source of goodness, but it is forever the course of goodness. So don't be conformed on the outside. Be transformed on the inside. People think you're good with God if you don't murder. But take it from me, anger will murder you. Leave your gift at the altar, your heart will be an altar, or your heart will be altered by anger into a factory of hate. People think sexual purity is scandal avoidance. Cut off your hands, pluck out your eyes, spiritual maturity by dismemberment. Or you could let me change your heart, give you a new start, take over every part. I can change the course of your divorce. I can change the force of your discourse. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Every spin or sin comes from down below. Turn the cheek. Give the shirt. Go the mile. Love leads. Love bleeds. Be like that. Do not practice your righteousness in front of others to be approved by them. It's an addiction. It's an affliction. You'll become a fiction. Make giving like tying your tie, like tying your shoes. It's not even news. Keep your left hand in the dark. Hypocrites pray to look good. They want applause. They're a lost cause. Unseen, unknown, in secret, alone. He's near. He hears. When you're fasting, you can be feasting. Don't advertise disguise. Don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Recognize worth, rust, moth, thief. Put your money where your mouth is. Your heart will follow. Greed is hollow. Don't worry about your life. Look at the birds of the air. No ulcers, no colitis, no high blood pressure, but they're fed by Chef God. Look at the lilies, no labor, no stress, but Kardashian and GQ in the way they dress. I wouldn't worry. Eliminate hurry. Look for God everywhere, every minute, because he's in it. I wouldn't hurry. Don't judge. Your measure will be your treasure. Remember the speck in the plank. Remember the pearl and the pig. Help the pig, save the pearl. Ask, seek, knock. It's how the universe works. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you, for this is the Bible in a tweet. Now choose this day. Will you do what I say? Will you obey? Follow the narrow way or follow the herd. Ignore my word. Let your heart be unwashed, uncured. Everyone's building a home. Everyone's facing a storm. 
It will come without trying. It'll come when you're dying. Build it strong. Face it well. And he finished, and they were amazed. Salt of the earth, light of the world, second mile, birds of the air, lilies of the field, treasure in heaven, house on the rock, kingdom of God, ask, seek, knock. Blessed, 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 blessed. Amen. That's the Sermon on the Mount in just about three minutes. So, so this gets us into our text for today. And I want to actually start with a question. How do you tell what somebody values more than they value anything else, what they value above all? And the best way is not to ask them. The best way is to look at what makes them go ballistic when it gets damaged. Um, I was driving a couple of years ago, a 13-year-old Honda Accord, kind of dinged and uh, uh, dented, uh, kind of a beater car. And I was in a parking lot. Anybody notice how in parking lots, the, the vehicles keep getting bigger, but the spaces keep getting smaller? Then I was backing out, and I heard a little scraping sound. And so I got out to take a look, and sure enough, there was a little line in the other car. Not a dent, not a ding, just almost decorative. But um, I'm a pastor, and, and so I knew I needed to leave word. And the worst part was this other car was not a beater like mine. It was a brand new car. It was an Italian car. The name rhymes with Terrari. It's a true story. So I left a note, got a call from the owner the next day. And he said, I appreciate you leaving a note. I just need you to know that car is like my baby. And I have to have it in mint condition. I said, okay, I understand. Called me up the next day. He said, just need to let you know. I took it in. They said that that scratch cannot be buffed out. They have to replace the entire panel. I said, okay, I understand. Call me back the next day. Have to let you know. They don't have that panel in stock. It has to be imported from Italy. Apparently, there's a quarry or something over there. So, okay, I understand. Call me back one more time. He said, I just have to let you know, this whole thing has bothered me so much. I'm getting a new car. You don't owe me a thing. <laughs> so I said, well, if you're not going to use the old car anymore. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, it's their car, it's their house. If you were to ask the question, what do you think God values more than anything else, what would you say? Then I think the Bible is really clear about that. It's people. God loves people. God is a relational being and then made human beings in his own image, every one of us. So when people get dinged, when people get hurt, when people get damaged, it kind of puts God on tilt. He wants them in mint condition and he will pay any price for this. And this is universal, not just love your neighbor, not just love your family, love your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. Care for the alien, care for the immigrant, care for the widows and the orphans, what we would call marginalized people, give to the poor. This is such a priority for God that Jesus said in this Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you've gone to church to worship God and express your devotion, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, 
and then come and offer your gift. In other words, God would rather have a repaired relationship and an unoffered gift than an offered gift and a broken relationship. All of which brings us to our brief, formidable text from the Bible for this message. Here's a very cool thing. Last Sunday, my wife Nancy and I were in Sacramento, Auburn, actually, with our daughter and her husband, awaiting the birth of our second grandchild. Nancy and I were watching the Westgate service online as Pastor Jay preached about, give us this day our daily bread. Literally, while he was preaching, we got the call, our second grandchild was born. So that was a very memorable sermon for a lot of reasons. And we're all a lot like that Norwegian guy Jay was talking about on day 87. Wow, the God that gives bread, feeds birds, clothes flowers, gives life and breath to little babies. Who doesn't love those words? Daily bread. But the words we come to today are much more daunting. So let's read them together out loud just to make sure that we're dwelling on them. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus says, I am to pray and ask God's forgiveness for my wrongdoing and my sin. And that's sobering enough. But then he says, I'm to tie that to the way that I extend forgiveness to people in my life who hurt me. I am actually to ask God, make this a petition, God, you model your forgiveness of me after the way you see me offering forgiveness to people that ding and dent my life. Treat me in my offenses against you the way I treat people who have offended me. I don't know about you. I don't want that. Somebody said that to pray the Lord's Prayer with an unforgiving spirit is like signing your own death warrant. Great Christian thinker and writer Charles Williams said, no word in English carries a greater possibility of terror than the little word as in that clause. Forgive us our debts as we forgive. And lest we might miss this, Jesus is so serious about it that he adds a little postscript to the Lord's Prayer. People who study these things say, if you send out an email or a letter, the single item that folks read the most is the P.S. So Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount the most prayed prayer in human history for 2,000 years. And then he adds a P.S. at the end of it. P.S. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive, also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Now, it's very severe. And you may find yourself thinking God is being way too strict here. Or, depending on if you've been around churches too much, you might think, but God has to forgive me. That's his job. That's the deal. If I ask, he has to. Now, what Jesus is not saying here, I think, Jesus is not saying God could forgive you, but if you don't forgive others, he will withhold forgiveness in order to motivate you to do it. He is commenting on the nature of forgiveness. So we need to spend a moment or two on this. There is a big difference between wanting to be forgiven 
versus wanting to get out of trouble. Those are two different things. Sometimes in churches, we think about grace just as the way by which I get out of trouble with God. So, for example, um, when Nancy and I got married, for probably the first 15 years of our marriage, when I would get angry with her, I would very often respond by coldness and withdrawal. I'm not a big screamer. I'm Swedish. My spiritual gift is pouting. So <laughs> if I was upset, for example, we might be with the kids. If she'd done something to tick me off, and I wouldn't yell at her. I would just be a little more animated when I was talking with the kids, but kind of short and polite when I was talking with Nancy. I would give the kids a little more eye contact, but I would kind of avoid looking directly at Nancy. I would calculate this just enough so I knew that she could feel it, but it would be subtle enough so that if she asked us something wrong, I could say, no, why? Is something wrong with you? Am I the only one here ever to do anything like this? Nobody else? And this would sometimes last for days. Until something would happen, I'd feel guilty or feel sorry and want to reconnect. And this pattern went on for years. Over time, it wounded her really deeply. And finally, after an especially severe episode when I wanted to make up, Nancy said, no, not this time. She said, I'm not leaving. I'm committed, but I can't stand this pattern anymore. And just making up keeps reinforcing it. It's not changing. I think you have some work to do. So I'm not going to pretend to be close to you now. Things need to change. And that began a very painful year and a half in my life. A lot of work. A lot of anxiety and depression. And, and when that pattern finally fully became clear to me, I wanted to be forgiven not just to avoid pain. Like for 10 or 15 years, really, I had just been doing pain management when I would want to make up. Forgiveness actually meant a lot of hard conversations and truth-telling and counsel and more pain. It meant realizing I needed to genuinely intend to become different, and I needed to honestly promise to work on it and to seek help from God, and I did. If I want you to forgive me, it means I agree with you I have done wrong. I want to become a different kind of person. That's part of what it means to want to be forgiven. If I want to be forgiven, not just to get out of trouble, it means I want to become the kind of person who will not do that again. Imagine I were to have said to Nancy, I don't want to quit withdrawing and being cold when you displease me. I kind of enjoy that. I just want you to not complain about it. Well, then I wouldn't want a forgiver. I would just want an enabler. So see, if I really want to be forgiven by God, I agree with him, I've done wrong. And I genuinely want to become the kind of person who will not do that. If I cling to resentment and grudge holding and bitterness and retaliation and passive aggressive behavior with other people, I don't actually want to be forgiven. I just want to get out of trouble. In other words... It is not psychologically possible for us to simultaneously experience deep forgiveness, repentance, grace with God, but be harsh, punitive, and distant towards other people. Now, this is what is sometimes called in a book by an author, Dallas Willard, the unity of spiritual orientation. 
You'll see this reflected a lot in Jesus' teachings. The unity of spiritual orientation means you cannot have one posture towards God and another posture towards people. It's not that you shouldn't. It's that it is impossible. And you see this a ton. For example, when John says, whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. He doesn't say, if you love God, you should love your brother or sister. He says, to the extent that you don't love them, you are not able psychologically to love God because we're all whole beings and love pervades our character to some extent or it does not. So this request is really that I become a different kind of person, a person who by the power of God naturally seeks to be forgiven when it is needed and seeks to offer forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Yes, 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 of course. If we understand, if we get the kind of person God is and what life in the kingdom of God is like, we wouldn't want anything else. So, what exactly do we do when we forgive? And now this gets real practical for you and for me. The best book I know on the subject of forgiveness was written by a guy named Lou Smeads. It's called Forgive and Forget. And Lou used to say that forgiveness involves four stages. So here we go. We hurt. We hate. We heal. And then uh, if the other person... Uh, we'll participate, cooperate, come on common ground, we come together. So, first the hurting part. The crisis of forgiveness comes when you have been hurt, and it's deep, and it's personal, and it's unfair. And you cannot fix it, and you cannot make it go away. Now, the natural human response to hurt is, you hurt me, I want you to hurt. Um, several years ago, we were in Bath, England. Some of you might have been there or read about that place. Uh, it was, it, it, there's hot springs there. There were that formed kind of a combination Roman spa and worship center 2,000 years ago. And you can still see there are dozens and dozens and dozens of prayers that have been excavated that in the ancient world, they paid to have written down and stored there and offered to the gods. They are called cursed tablets because by far the most common kind of prayers in that site are curses. People would give the name of someone who hurt them and tell what their crime was and specify how they wanted the gods, maybe their particular favorite god, to hurt the person that hurt them. So, for example, this is from one of the cursed tablets. Ancient, not making this up. Dosimidus has lost two gloves. He asked that the person who has stolen them should lose his mind and his eyes in the temple at the place where the goddess appoints. This is a guy who loved his gloves. I'll just give one more example, but again, there's hundreds of these. 
I invoke you holy angels and holy names. Tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter. You carry us, the charioteer, and all his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. Let the starting gates not open properly. Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. Let him not make the turn properly. Let him not receive the honors. Let him not come from behind and pass. But instead, let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up. Let him drag behind, both in the early races and the later ones. Now, now, quickly, quickly. You ever pray a prayer like that? In church? Now imagine for a moment another category that might be called bless my enemy tablet, okay? Imagine a tablet in one of those ancient Roman worship sites uh, that says something like, you carry us, hurt me badly. Would you deliver me from my prison of hatred and resentment? Would you help you carry us to find genuine repentance? Would you forgive his sin and mine? Would you heal our relationship? How many bless my enemy tablets do you think they have found in Bath, England? Zero. Do you understand? People did not pray prayers like that to Zeus or to Bacchus or to Baal. The impact of Jesus on humanity is largely not understood in our day. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, fierce loyalty to your friends and opposition to your enemies was considered noble to such an extent that one monograph on the topic is simply called Helping Friends Hurting Enemies. People weren't embarrassed about that. They admired that. The gods were there to help you get what you want. And if you got hurt, what you wanted was to get even. When we're angry, you hurt me, I want to hurt you back. And this has not gone away, by the way, in 2,000 years. There was an article in the L.A. Times a while ago Uh, Dave Hagler, who was an umpire in a recreational baseball league, told about one time, he said, I was driving too fast in the snow in Colorado, and a policeman pulled me over and gave me a speeding ticket. I tried to talk him out of it, telling him how worried I was about insurance. I'm a safe driver, but I'm in a legitimate hurry, etc. He said, if I didn't like it, I could go to court. First game of the next baseball season, I'm umpiring behind home plate. And the first batter up is the same policeman. He recognizes me. I recognize him. He asks me, so how did it go with the ticket? I tell him, you'd better swing at everything. (laughs) Okay, what's natural is getting even. You hurt me, better swing at everything. I'll hurt you back. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a Tooth. There's a wonderful book about the seven deadly sins by Rebecca DeYoung. And she says, each of those sins is actually about the pursuit of a legitimate good, but in the wrong way or to the wrong extent. So intimacy, sexuality is really good, but lust pursues it in the wrong way with the wrong person. Uh, Money, material resources, really good, but greed wants too much of it. Rest is really good, but sloth pursues it in the wrong way. Anger is about justice, and we're made to want justice. But what what happens with anger is it turns into vengeance, and then hurt leads to hate. When I hate, when I look at you, I no longer see a person. I just see the hurt. All I see is someone who hurt me, and it's real binary. When I hate you... I just want to see you as bad. 
Nancy and I were in a small group many, many years ago in a little church that we were serving. And one member of that small group was a young woman who was very, very unchurched. And she was a terrific person, but kind of a magnet for guys that were just bad news. And she had been with this one guy who was just kind of a train wreck. He was abusive and selfish and cruel. And then he dumped her. And she's describing her hurt and sorrow and anguish and anger to our group. And she said, I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I hope he dies. Now, another member of our group was a longtime professional Christian, not making this up, who actually traveled around leading what she called Holy Ghost Explosion Revival Services. And she could not stand to hear this from somebody else in the church. So she said, oh, no, no, honey, you don't hate him. You love him. You want him to be saved. No, I don't. I don't want him to be saved. Then he'd go to heaven. I want him to rot in hell. I hate him. I want him to die, go to hell and burn. This is a really interesting conversation in our small group. <laughs> um, Jesus, see, was just citing conventional wisdom when he noted you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Of course they had heard that it was said. Often in the Sermon on the Mount, as you might know or remember, when he says, you have heard it said, he's going to talk about an Old Testament scriptural reference and correct what he believes to be a distorted application of it. Here, there's no place in the Old Testament where it says, hate your enemy. That was just conventional wisdom in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Nobody ever prayed to Molech, any of those gods. God bless my enemy. And by the way, and by the way, if you want to see hatred encouraged as a virtue today, just go online. Scorn, sarcasm, judgmentalism, condescension, superiority, insults, these are not just tolerated, they are considered to be signals of virtue. You can use them to build a following. So Westgate, can we say just as a church that we will not do that? We will not use the gift of technology to mismanage anger online and contribute to a culture of hate. Y'all really excited about that. I could tell. That was a great response. Okay. Um, uh, it is a strange truth that we rarely hate strangers. Usually, we hate people close to us. It's part of the toxicity of hate. Word we don't use sometimes in churches, but we need to because it's a deep part of the human existence. We hurt and then we hate. We do. When it comes to our relationships, sometimes love and hate get awfully close together because they're so intense. When our first baby was born, Nancy clutched her to her heart and said, got this real fierce look in her eyes, and that's a fierce spirit. And she said, I would kill for this baby. And that didn't feel real maternal to me. So I said, don't you mean that you would die for this baby? She looked at me and said, no, then I'd be dead. That'd be stupid. I wouldn't die for this baby. I'd kill for this baby. I talked to a friend, true story, last week, who is a grandfather now, and he said he had no idea how being a grandfather would fiercely grip his heart. He said, it's like this, I had kids, and, and I thought, man, I'd kill for my kids. But what I've learned now is I'd kill for my kids, but I'd kill my kids for my grandkids. <laughs> and he's a pastor. 
I'm not making this up, honest to God. He's a pastor you all know. It is possible, stay with me now, stay with me, here we are, possible to be a Christian and hate. And I know that from real personal experience. It's possible to be a Christian and have ruminating thoughts that run over and over and over about how awful what this person said was or what this person did was. And have to battle with those for days, weeks, months, years. I did when I was on my way to church today to talk about forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is possible to love someone and hate them at the same time. It's possible to want to, want to kill somebody and want to die for them. But hate becomes so toxic. Christian author and Pastor Frederick Beekner wrote, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. So now into a world of hurt and hate, it is Jesus who brings this remarkable and creative, unpredictable, supernatural alternative. His strange teachings here on loving your enemies that sounded so odd in the ancient world, on blessing your persecutors, on turning the other cheek, on going the second mile, were so unusual in the ancient world that Hannah Arndt, brilliant scholar, the first woman appointed to a first full professorship at Princeton, not a believer herself, but she wrote this, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. And so we heal. Only forgiving can do this. Now, forgiving doesn't mean that we excuse what the other person did or that we tolerate wrongdoing. That can be very dangerous. It may not even mean that we can reconcile. If somebody sins against you and refuses to acknowledge the truth and repent, you may not be able to rebuild that relationship. But forgiving means that I give up the right to hurt you back. When I hate you, all I can see is the hurt that you caused me, and I want to think of you as evil. I want to think of you as all bad. I don't want to see anything human in you. When I heal begin to look at you with new eyes. And I realize that you too have been hurt. And that you too are a mixed bag like me. And I am in no position to judge. Only God knows. And then when I heal, 
I can feel about you with new feelings. Not just hurt and not just hate. I begin to wish you well. There's a beautiful picture of this in the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 7 says uh, to God, God, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. God, they will no longer be what determine my relationship with you, how you look at me, how you feel about me. And then, God, you can help me do that with others, to hurl that hurt into the depths of the sea. But it usually happens slowly with a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion. Forgiveness is a lot more complicated for me today than it was 40 years ago. I understand the theory of it. But putting it into practice in real life is just messy. We heal slowly, with confusion, with God's help, new eyes, new feeling. And then when the dance of forgiveness goes right, we come together. We reconcile with the other person. Now, this is always the aim of forgiveness. And you may be thinking about somebody in your life where this could never happen, but you never know. One of the most unforgettable hours at a breakfast I ever spent was uh, with a woman named Mary and a young man named O'Shea. Uh, Mary, many, many years earlier, had a 16-year-old son who was killed in a fight with a bar, in a bar. And uh, she hated the man that killed her son. And her pastor very quickly said, you need to get over it. And she said, I left that church. And for about 10 years, she just struggled with bitterness until she realized it was going to kill her. And after a decade, one day a thought came to her as she was in the process of healing. Why don't you try to meet with the man who killed your son? And they have arrangements for that kind of thing in the state where she lives. And she asked, and initially he said, no, there's no way. I would never meet with her. And then finally, he said, all right, I will try. He was, I think, 16 or 17 when he went into prison. Now he was in his late 20s. So he's a man who has been hardened by prison life. And they talked. And when she got up to go, she asked if she could hug him. And he said, yes. And Mary just collapsed in his arms, and she was sobbing. And he said, you know, I've been in prison for 10 years. I've never been as scared as I was with that woman with her arms around me, sobbing like that. And they began to meet, and they began to pray. Today, in Minnesota, they live next door to each other. This woman lives next door and has become a second mom to the man who killed her son. So you never know what forgiveness might do. She is, as he is, a devoted follower of Jesus. Forgive us our debts. Uh, but it doesn't always happen. People are not always able to come together. Depends on the other person's response. Always in forgiving, it helps me to remember the first part of Jesus' prayer. Forgive us our debts. 
helps me to remember I'm a debtor. I'm a sinner. It's very hard for me to be self-righteous towards others when I remember the reality of my own brokenness and sin. Um, Jesus, there's one story about him when he's with a woman that got caught in adultery and everybody picks up a stone and they're going to throw it. Remember what Jesus said to them? Let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. So uh, we're going to have a little exercise at the close of the service. I'm going to ask the band to come out. Uh, and in a few moments, Jay's going to lead us in this. There's some stones up here. And maybe there's somebody that has hurt you. And the idea is for you to take one of these stones and do not take it home and throw it at the person that hurts you. <laughs> but you might want to write a word on it, something that's in your heart, some you know, betrayal or wound. Or, and then you remember that verse in Micah, throw it into the deepest sea and there'll be a place to throw it. Or maybe you just need to experience God's forgiveness in your own life. And it's really hard to absorb it. Throw it in there. You and I have some debtors, mom or dad, husband or wife or ex, son or a daughter, somebody at work, maybe somebody in this room. Uh, every morning, just as kind of a habit now for several years, I'll say the Lord's Prayer. And uh, Every morning I stop when I hit that phrase. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God, help me to do that. There's an author, Walter Wink, who wrote about uh, two peacemakers who visited with a group of Polish Christians after the Second World War, after their country had been decimated by Germany. And they, they asked, would you be willing to meet with some Christians from West Germany? They want to ask forgiveness for what Germany did. They want to begin a new relationship with you as brothers and sisters in Jesus. And there is silence. And then one of the Poles said, what you are asking is impossible. Each stone of Warsaw is soaked with Polish blood they spilled. We cannot forgive. And the peacemakers said, understand. And they finished the conversation. They decided to close by reciting together the Lord's Prayer. And, and they went through it, our Father, art in heaven, until they got to those words, forgive us our debts as. And everybody stopped praying. And they were greatly distressed. One of the Polish Christians said, I have to say yes. I have to say yes. Because if I don't forgive, I can't say this prayer anymore. I can no longer call myself a Christian. Humanly speaking, I cannot do it, but God will give us the strength. And 18 months later, Polish Christians and German Christians met in Vienna and established a friendship that would last the rest of their lives. And it makes me wonder, over the last 2,000 years, how many marriages might have changed, or families, or friendships, or churches, or lives, if when the Lord's Prayer was prayed, we stopped at that one and thought about that one little word. 
So I want to ask us now to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Only don't pray it on autopilot. Don't pray it the whole way through. When we get to those words, as we have forgiven our debtors, I'm going to ask us to just stop. Let God speak. You bow your heads now and let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.